Dead Air by Scott Overton. Previously in Dead Air, with no new attempts on his life, radio man Lee Garrett has tried to enjoy the little moments in his life that make it worthwhile. But when he makes plans for a romantic getaway, the police try to change his mind. Now, Chapter 20. Sunset painted the tops of dark pines. Through fresh snow sparkling in the headlights, Lee turned the Volvo onto a narrow lane marked by a worn, painted steel sign that read Crystal Falls Road. The road was plowed, but not salted or sanded. It ran between high snowbanks with a strip of pale sky for a cover. As they drove, the sky slowly turned navy blue, sprinkled with stars. Lee felt as if he were in a dream. This feels like a dream, Candace said, and then looked mystified when he laughed. The lodge was a calendar painting of rustic log buildings with stalks of smoke sprouting from stone chimneys. The owner led them to their cabin, an A-frame large enough for a modest family home, with gables jutting from the upper loft bedrooms. Modern insulation was covered by weathered cedar shakes. Inside, the log walls had been left exposed, though smoothed and finished. Braided rag rugs were strategically strewn about the polished wooden floor. Under the guard-railed loft was a small tiled kitchen with a bedroom and bathroom beside it. But most of the spacious ground floor was for lounging around a wood stove with a glass front. It looked as if it could heat an auditorium. There are electric heaters in the bedrooms if you need them. Only our hydro supply out here isn't always the most reliable. That's why the cook stove is propane. Here, I'll show you how it works. It took no more than a minute to explain the simple controls. Then he led them toward the stairs. Bruno, it's absolutely gorgeous, Candace breathed. But you must have bookings for this cabin months in advance. Oh, we had a last-minute cancellation, he winked at Lee. And your young man has sent me lots of business over the years. It was clearly the best unit the lodge had to offer, and Lee felt thoroughly indebted. He gazed in amazement at the woven art and original paintings on the walls, the antique lamp work and the furniture dotted with homey throw cushions. A giant oval rag rug filled the space in front of the wood stove. Candace's eyes glistened as she blew Lee a kiss, then followed Bruno upstairs. "'Of course, you don't need to cook at all,' the man was saying. "'My wife and the girls serve up breakfast, lunch, and supper over at the main building. "'Even a late evening snack, if you want. "'Good Bavarian cooking, not for those on a diet.' "'He laughed and patted his ample stomach. "'If you do want to cook for yourselves, "'we have all the basic groceries over at the store. "'Just ask at the front desk any time, "'and someone will open up for you.' "'Queen-sized beds on iron frames "'filled most of the space in the snug upper bedrooms.' The quilts looked handmade, and the simple window dressings were chosen to match. Electric lights were shaped like oil lamps. Lee brushed a curtain aside and glanced through crystal-rimmed glass at the tiny windows of distant cabins twinkling between dark boughs. It had taken Bruno and his family more than twenty years to build the resort into its present form, but the end result was a jewel. He said so. "'You're very kind,' Bruno smiled, and sometimes it's even worth it. He gave another of his deep laughs and led them back downstairs. He showed them where to find the fire extinguishers, flashlights, a pair of real oil lamps, and a manual that explained everything. There's someone at the front desk until midnight if you need anything, anything at all. Make yourselves at home, my friends. Enjoy your stay with us. 
He waved a large hand and backed out the door as they repeated their thanks. Snow crunched under fading footsteps. Lee pulled Candace close. This is so beautiful, she said. It doesn't seem real. Are you sure we're here? Are you sure it was me you wanted to invite? He answered her with a long kiss, then brushed his cheek against her hair. Without you here, it would just be four walls and a floor. They spent what was left of the evening curled up on the hearth rug, with pillows to support their backs and goblets of red wine in their hands. Candace sighed as she gazed into the flames. God, life is good sometimes. Lee was struck by the simple words. Life could be good. The past few weeks he'd been on a train hurtling along a dark track while the world of beauty and wonder passed beyond his reach on either side and was swept behind. Now that train was somewhere far away in the night, and he'd found refuge within a frozen, perfect crystal of time. Thank you for bringing me here, Candace said softly. She meant anywhere close to him. Thank you for being here. He meant in the world where he had been so lucky to find her. Many long, full silences later, when the fire had burned down to lava red and they heard the crack of frost in the trees, she asked, Are you expecting us to share a room? He kissed her cheek. No, love. I promised Paul separate bedrooms. She cuffed his shoulder and his laugh turned into a tender smile. I'm in no hurry, truly. I want it when you're ready, completely ready. He brushed a hand slowly through her hair, and then it will be right. She kissed his ear and neck and hair and whispered hoarsely, You are something very special, you know that? He knew that he was only what she had made him. He led her by the hand up the stairs, and as they got ready for bed, he drew as much pleasure from the sight of her in her simple nightgown preparing to brush her teeth as he might have felt from a display of lingerie. Different, certainly, but a reminder that love could burn as hotly as lust. She caught him watching and gave him a puzzled look, but he only shook his head. Then she came to his room like a high school student at a co-ed camp, fearful of being caught by the chaperones. In their night clothes, they sat together in the middle of the bed and kissed sweet, unspoken promises. Saturday dawned dimly, and he lay awake for what seemed like an hour, listening for any signs of Candace stirring. He felt like a child on Christmas morning. At last he heard the creak of bedsprings and went to her door. Just a minute, he heard the rustle of a hairbrush and the light pad of her feet approaching. The door opened slowly and the morning sunshine was in her smile. She wanted to try every activity the lodge offered, but the food and coffee were even better than Bruno promised and overindulgence tempered her ambitions. It didn't matter. They decided to go snowshoeing to a beaver pond Bruno described. Candace had never used snowshoes, and her choice of equipment was more romantic than practical. Instead of one of the lightweight modern designs, she picked a traditional set in varnished wood and catgut. That demanded fur mucklucks rather than thin-solate boots. Lee enjoyed watching her try everything on, then matched her choices. He liked snowshoeing, but hadn't done it in years. Bruno gave him a compass and a GPS, then pointed out a nearby cell phone tower that was visible from high ground. Candace tramped back and forth beside the lodge to get her bush legs, laughing at her own clumsiness. How am I supposed to get anywhere like this? I can barely stand with my feet spread this far apart. Lee showed her how the shoes were shaped to step closely together, creating an interlocking print. You wouldn't get far walking as if you're on horseback, he said. 
She performed a clownish John Wayne impression and fell laughing onto her side. Struggling to her feet, she scooped up a handful of powdery snow and threw it at him. He dodged, then shook the contents of a small branch onto her, making her shriek. She bent over to brush the crystals from her neck before they could melt, and he helped. Once clear of the food smells, the scent of fir needles, balsams, and especially the cedars pricked at their nostrils. It was air like neither had breathed in a long time, free of petrochemicals and fabric softeners. The oxygen was like liquid energy in their veins. The February sun provided light, but little heat. They pulled their hoods up and set off. The path to the beaver pond showed as a gap between trees, but was covered with a week's worth of snow. Walking was a little more effort, but also more comfortable once off the packed snow around the buildings. Lee warned her to be careful of saplings and fallen branches under the snow cover that could snag the webbing and trip her. Dark evergreen boughs bore a thick white frosting along their surfaces, like the plastic pines of glass globe paperweights. The swish of nylon ski pants gave their march a rhythm, accented by the crackle of an occasional broken twig and the sporadic chirrup of unseen chickadees. Sunshine fell in shafts through the trees. Oh, Lee, it's beautiful, it's perfect. He puffed warm breath to melt delicate frost crystals on her eyelashes, and she blinked the moisture away. Not too cold? he asked. I'm wonderful. I couldn't agree more. They reached the beaver pond nearly an hour later, an expanse of white encircled by snow-capped conifers. A copse of dead trees stood stark and ragged on the left, the trunks stripped of most of their bark. On one of them a weathered wooden box, nailed about six feet from the ground, was home to a pair of small birds that flew to higher branches at the approach of strangers. As Candace took in the scene, Lee reached inside his coat and pulled out a leather wineskin. For medicinal purposes only. Surely, Mr. Garrett, you don't think I'm as gullible as all that. Well, if you don't want any, he made to turn away, lifting it to his lips. She laughed and snatched it from him, squirted it into her mouth, and then gave a laugh as she used a mittened hand to wipe a few spilled drops from her chin. Why, good sir, are you sure you're not just trying to take advantage of an innocent maid? I make no promises. You enter these woods at your own risk. He pulled her to him, but her foot slipped off the snowshoe and her balance went with it. Before either could react, they lay on their sides in the deep snow, laughing and blowing icy flakes from their mouths. The last traces were melted away by a kiss. He could smell the tang of her skin, the perfume of her dampened hair. He kicked slightly to free his toes from the straps, and she rolled him on top of her, the weight of his body pressing her deep into the snow. They kissed again, hard, relishing the feel of cold skin and warm lips. "'I love you so much,' she whispered. "'If you don't love me yet, don't feel you have to say it. It's all right. Just let me be close to you.' She pulled his head down beside her as if to forestall what he might say, but he pulled back and held her eyes, and in them she saw all the love she could ever ask for, and was content. The Beaver Lodge had been abandoned for years. They tramped through a patch of cattails, snapping the brittle stems while a pair of ravens scolded them from the top of a tall pine. Then they stamped out a heart shape in the snow and made snow angels in the middle of it, laughing to know they were behaving like adolescents. Their muscles finally began to protest at the unaccustomed motion, and they decided to return to the lodge. Just before they left the pond, Lee squatted low and drew a finger in a slow line above the snow, pointing to the three-toed marks of a bird, a partridge perhaps. 
The tracks snaked unevenly toward the shore, as if in no hurry, then were joined by a second set, possibly a mate. Curious, the snowshoers followed the twin path. It didn't go far. Close to a fallen log near the shoreline, the snow was scuffed and dented. Candace picked up a small, downy feather. In a line from the log to the trampled snow was a set of new prints, a circular pad with an arc of four toe pads and tiny triangular points above each toe. A large fox, Lee thought, or possibly a coyote. Only one of the birds had remained to fly away. Long before the lodge came in sight, they knew they'd overdone it. As they wearily returned the equipment, Ilsa gave a knowing look and suggested they forestall the worst of their muscles' complaints with a soak in the main building's hot tub. Lee had completely forgotten about it, but Ilsa found a pair of swim shorts for him to buy. With more foresight, Candace had packed a red Speedo. She looked incredible in it. Easing into the frothing water was like slipping into a fantasy. The heat sank deep into their bones, and it was an electric thrill each time their skin touched. They submerged up to their noses, closed their eyes, and held hands under the water. When they dressed again, Candace pulled at his arm. Let's go into the store. I want some things. I want to cook for you tonight. You don't need to do that. The restaurant... If I needed to do it, it wouldn't be any fun. She smiled and dragged him along. I'm afraid it'll have to be spaghetti, she said, eyeing the shelves. My other specialties take too many ingredients they don't have here. Spaghetti's fine. Anything would be fine. I need to be able to show off my domestic skills, don't I? Besides, she added in a softer voice, I don't want to have to come out again tonight. Her look sent a shiver up his spine. There were still some hours of daylight left, but the combination of exercise and fresh air made them drowsy. Time didn't press. They curled up together on the love seat and fell asleep that way. When Lee awoke, the sunlight was already pink through the picture window, and soft sounds came from Candace at work in the kitchen. "'Anything I can do?' he asked, stepping close behind her. "'Yes, there is.' She drew his arms around her waist and pulled him close against her back. He pressed his face into her neck, and she gave a giggle as she stirred the pot of sauce. She brought the stirring spoon to her mouth and tested the sauce, giving a little nod of approval. "'You taste as you cook and still keep a figure like that?' Flatterer, she turned her head with a grin. I don't like being bound by a recipe. When I use them, I change them the way I like them. Uh-oh, Lee laughed. And do you treat men the same way? She gave him a mock frown, then kissed him with conviction. Except for the ones I like just the way they are. Hesitantly, he said, I have a feeling I'm not the man you think I am. I'm no saint. She raised a finger to his lips. I have a feeling you couldn't admit it if you were. Besides, who wants to go on a romantic getaway with the saint? She laughed, but his face was still serious. I mean it. I'm not a nice guy. I've done some shitty things. Most of them I didn't even have the good grace to be ashamed of. Michaela was right to leave me. I was poisoned to her. He paused, then leaned back on the counter. I've been an arrogant son of a bitch most of my life, and radio gave me a perfect outlet. Some people have hated me. They had reason to. Hold on, cowboy. You're a broadcaster. You talk to thousands of people for hours every day, year after year. You're not going to please all the people all of the time. Don't think I haven't taken that excuse out for a spin myself. He turned his face away and continued in a low voice. There was one time, about eight years ago, ratings were good. I was a big man in town. I figured I could push the envelope a little, sort of Howard Stern light. 
There had been a small news item about gay players in college football. I asked if they'd made all their passes at the wrong team, if they were allowed to be MVP and prom queen at the same time. Juvenile stuff, not even very funny, but I wouldn't let it go. Kept coming back to it. A while later I got a call. A teenage boy. He sounded almost hysterical, saying I was right and the world didn't need another worthless queer. I tried to get his name, calm him down, but he hung up. He had to swallow hard to release the next words. The next day I read the newspaper. A kid had killed himself with his father's shotgun. High school all-star. Are you sure it was him? There was a note. It even contained a few of the words I'd used. I heard that secondhand, because I knew the school principal, but he didn't make the connection. Nobody did but me. I nearly quit, nearly got out of the damn business, but there wasn't anything else I knew how to do. Did you tell your wife? You didn't, did you? No, he confirmed. I couldn't. I guess our marriage went downhill more quickly after that. Maybe everything else, too. He hung his head. So you see, I'm no knight or saint or even a very good person. I don't deserve you. She held him close. You deserve far better than you know, she said. Just don't ever keep secrets like that from me, okay? She didn't see the clench of his jaw or the dullness of his eyes. While she got ready to serve the food, he sliced cheese and bread and opened another bottle of wine. The meal was delicious. There were no candles, so they lit the oil lamps and turned off the electric lights. Their mouths said little, but their eyes spoke volumes. Her face was classically beautiful in the lamplight, and he could have looked at it forever. But he sensed that she had something on her mind. What is it? he asked. Nothing. Just, well, I don't have all that much experience with men, really. I I've been too involved with my work. Or maybe that was just an excuse. I nearly got married when I was twenty-five. I think I told you that before. We seemed so well-suited, but when it came time to make the final decision, I realized that he wanted to change me, take the attention I gave to lost causes and keep it for himself. And there was something missing, some spark. My friends accused me of watching too many girl movies. She gave a little laugh. For a while they even had me convinced, and I wondered if I'd made a terrible mistake. But you know she said softly, lifting her eyes to his. I wasn't wrong. I didn't make a mistake. His throat constricted, and he could only squeeze her fingers. Later, as they sat on the hearth rug with refills of wine, Candace turned to him with a contented smile and saw a shadow cross his face. What's wrong? You still look like a man with a guilty secret. His startled look made her smile vanish, but it was too late to take back the words. They shifted apart. Only guilty because I should never have kept it secret from you. He took a ragged breath. Then he told her everything, from the first hateful letter to the incident at the craft fair that had perversely brought them together. The vandalism, the poison throat spray, the brushes with death. It was a flood that, once begun, he could not stop. When the confession finally ended, she didn't seem to realize it for a minute or more. Then she slowly raised her head, the skin beneath her cheekbones dark with blood. "'When did you plan to tell me?' Her voice was hollow, broken. "'I planned to tell you hundreds of times. And never. Part of me needed so much for you to know. The other part was too afraid of scaring you away. Finally, I just didn't know how.' 
You could have died. You could have died. She hurled the words at him. I just found you, and I watched you nearly slip away. God, I barely knew you, and I prayed. Her eyes filled with tears. And now, she choked up, now you're telling me that I could still lose you? Oh, God. He braced himself for her fury, but she dropped her clenched fists, struggled to her feet, and staggered toward the bathroom as if she were about to be sick. He could see her bent shadow on the open door. The water was running, and he thought he heard a whimper. It filled him with shame. At long last she stood in the doorway, framed against the light so he couldn't see her face. I have to think about this. He nodded and watched her mount the staircase to her room as if it were a mountain. Snatching up the bottle of wine, he nearly spilled it on the rug. He should finish it off, find another, get seriously drunk. Why not? If only he'd told her sooner. He'd been an idiot. But love had crept up on him so unexpectedly, and he no longer knew how to share such pain, especially with someone he couldn't bear to hurt. He slowly put down the wine bottle. There was no point in making things worse. Instead, he emptied his glass and sat there, staring into the flames. Long into the evening, he heard a sound on the stairs. Candace took each step as if she were treading on glass. She'd changed into a pair of light gray track pants and a soft sweater of a darker gray. Her hair was brushed, her face calm. She came to the back of the love seat and stood resting her hands on it, looking at him. When she finally spoke, her voice was strained but under control. Forgive me. He leapt to his feet and crushed her in his arms. Please forgive me, she said again. I was just so shocked that all I could think about was myself, my fear, my pain. God help me, I felt betrayed by the world, not by you. I think I can understand why you couldn't tell me. He squeezed her again to tell her she didn't need to say more but she took his face in her hands. It's just that I couldn't bear to lose you now. A storm had passed. The fire and the wine sank lower while they nestled together and kissed and talked, of dreams, of fears, of joys and tears and plans and promises. The night had shrunk to a small cocoon of amber glow when Candace took his right hand in her left and slid it slowly along her hip, then under the waistband of her sweater. Heart-pounding, he continued the motion along the line of her ribs until his palm cupped her breast, left bare for him. He reacted with a gasp, and she breathed into his ear, I'm ready. The desire that carried them up the stairs to her room gave way to a moment's hesitation as they stood apart, and she waited for him to make the first move. He brought her lips to his and slid his hands under the back of her sweater to delight in the smoothness of her skin. His palms slid along her shoulder blades to her sides and then forward still more. She gave a small gasp and rose slightly on her toes at his touch, first tender, then firm. He drew the sweater over her head and stepped back. Emboldened by the look in his eyes, she pulled the drawstring at her waist and let the fabric fall loosely to the floor. Then, reveling in his attention, she slid onto the bed with a whisper of skin against linen and watched him undress. He settled lightly on the edge of the mattress and reached out a hand. Guide me, he said, and the night dissolved into a flow of passion and discovery. When they were finally spent, they fell asleep in each other's arms. He dreamed of partridge, a pair of them, and then only one. 
It flapped through the forest, barely avoiding obstacles that leapt from the darkness, landing improbably on a window ledge of the cabin. It scratched at the window to get in, then knocked at the glass with a wing. For a moment Lee was the partridge. Then he woke up. The night was still except for a small branch tapping at the window in a light breeze. He wrapped his arms more tightly around his love, then drifted into the warm dark again. The sun was well above the horizon when they awoke. He kissed her sleepy eyes and drowsy smile and drew a lock of her hair to his face to breathe her in, as if its fragrance could prove he wasn't imagining. She really did lie at his side in the light of a new day, leaning on a pillow, drawing circles around his lips with a finger. That life could offer such a feeling of completeness was something he'd long forgotten. They made love again, slowly, perfectly, every move in unselfconscious union. When their breathing began to slow, he offered to do it again. She laughed and swatted him with a pillow, then rolled to her feet. She dressed, and he was captivated. Faint sounds of running water, a toothbrush, a hairbrush, were music, magic. He was reluctant to leave the bed, afraid to break the spell, even when he heard her footsteps on the stairs. But to stay behind was to be without her near. He thought he heard her call his name, so he pulled on some clothes. The mirror showed him the face of a stranger, wearing a broad smile. Surely not his face. He started toward the stairs. The explosion lifted him off his feet and flung him against the wall with a deafening roar. Heat seared his face. He sprawled against the boards, the breath knocked from his chest, his ears inexplicably filled with cotton. He pawed at them, but the sounds were all wrong. Animal noises, electronic shriek, smoke alarm. Candace! he screamed, flinging himself at the railing. A rag doll lay carelessly discarded on the floor below, tiny flames dancing on its clothing and hair. Horror broke with a moan from his throat as he snatched a blanket from the bed and hurtled down the stairs. He covered her and batted at the flames, then leapt to the wall and tore a fire extinguisher from its bracket. Hungry red tongues licked at the varnished frame of the kitchen, gathering beneath the overhang. With a shout of defiance, he sprayed the chemical at the base of the flames, then upward, sprayed and sprayed until the tank ran dry. In a fury, he cannoned the empty cylinder off the obscene ruin of a stove and surrendered to a racking cough as his lungs heaved to rid themselves of poisonous smoke. Another smell made his nostrils recoil. Propane! He scrambled forward and found the shut-off valve a few feet away along the wall. Dizzy and weak, he knelt beside his broken love. Her breathing was an erratic rasp. The lustrous skin was now blackened and rough. Whether from soot or burns, he couldn't tell. Lush lashes and eyebrows had been replaced by shriveled patches of steel-wool ash. Black tears streamed down her temples. He had to get help. He'd begun to rise when she called to him. "'I'm here! I'm here!' He repeated it like a mantra, as if his voice could heal her. "'I'll get you to a hospital. Lie still!' Her eyes struggled open. Shuddering fingers scrabbled at his arm, flailing like a drowning child as her throat worked and swallowed. The sound it produced was a cry of agony. I'm blind, Lee! Oh, God, I'm blind! In Chapter 21 of Dead Air, the aftermath of the tragedy at the Lodge has Lee Garrett at rock bottom, facing life alone again and knowing that his persecutors will never give up. He has no choice but to force a confrontation. 
If the next podcast episode is too long to wait, get your own copy of Dead Air by visiting scottoverton.ca. Learn more about radio or join our mailing list. Thanks to audionautics.com for the music, and thank you for listening. I'm Scott Overton.